is the story of my town. There's no town like it on the face of the earth because its business is make-believe. And for over 50 years, the people in this town have been getting up and going to work to tell the world a story. Down in that valley, some of them are busy crowning an emperor and others are fighting the civil war again. Somewhere else, a band of cattle thieves are shooting it up with the sheriff's posse. And two people who only met this morning are being married in front of an army of cameramen and crew. For this is Hollywood. You know, I've lived in this town for many years. I've acted in it and I've written about it for 21 years. I've seen spectacular changes because everything Hollywood does is spectacular. So are its people and they're part of this story. But no story has ever come out of Hollywood as spectacular as the change going on right now to its work, to its homes, to its people. And you wouldn't have to go far to find it. You're listening to part two of the series on Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper for Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Hedda Hopper was saddled with an unfortunate name. Elda Furry. She noted years after she changed it that she despised the name. Hedda recalled, Elder Furry has always sounded to me like a small blonde animal with soft skin that people like to stroke. Being stroked makes my hair rise on my head. Elda grew up in Altoona, Pennsylvania in a large conservative family. During interviews when she became an actress, Hedda gave so many different versions of her background. One of them, which appeared in 1930, she said that she was raised in a Quaker family and wore a bonnet and fichu until she was 18 years old. She may, in fact, have borrowed that from a stage production she was in when she played second lead in The Quaker Girl in 1913. But she was most likely raised a Quaker, but she doesn't mention it in her memoirs. From her earliest interviews, she claimed to be from many different towns in the Midwest, but one thing is for certain, she was well acquainted with the celebrity profile genre that Luella Parsons had helped to invent. And she maximized its potential to help her stage and film career. Elda's family life was far from ideal. Her father was a butcher who believed that women were born to work. Elda felt raw about the unfair advantage men had in the world. Her brothers did little more than put in some time at the family butcher shop, while Elda and her sisters and their mother worked from the minute they woke until bedtime. Elda resented her father for what she deemed his selfishness. Her mother was always pregnant and always working around the house. Elda and her sisters helped their mother cook, clean, bake, wash, iron, mend clothes, tend animals, plus they worked in the shop. When her grandfather became ill and came close to losing his sight, there was a point where he lived with them. He was a wealthy tyrant who owned 22 farms and drew some kind of basic sustenance watching other people labor under his eye. He had 12 children. Six went to university and six worked the farms. Elda's father was one of the unlucky furry children. Grandfather Furry's care required fresh, hot compresses placed on his eyes every hour. 
Since he was also incontinent, his bedding needed to be changed about five or six times a day, at a time when laundry was done by hand. Elda was 13 years old when she was his primary caregiver for two long months. After he recovered and moved back into his own home, he brought her in to thank her for her care one day. Her grandfather made a big show when he presented her with one silver dollar. Hedda recalls she was so mad she vowed she would never see him again, and she didn't. She didn't go to his funeral. She said the experience caring for her grandfather colored the rest of her life. She hated her older sister, Dora, who shifted much of the work onto her younger sister and went out of her way to take Elda's things, always wearing something first or ruining the few bits of glamour Elda had. Elda became so furious that one day she attacked Dora and scratched her face so badly that it was two weeks before she was fit to leave the house. And even then, she had to explain what happened by saying she had been attacked by a cat. Elda adored her mother, but she didn't want a life that was any, in any way resembled it. She watched her mother wither as she gave birth nine times and having seven children survive. When her father lit out for the Klondike to seek his fortune and left the family to fend for themselves, it created even more labor for the women in the house. They depended upon payment of outstanding butcher bills among their neighbors in Altoona. Two older brothers attempted to collect on the unpaid debts. The furry boys were timid in their efforts and unsuccessful. Elda asked her mother if she could try. No doubt this was an early opportunity for Elda to illustrate how the male advantage had no merit. She hated boys and took pleasure in giving them the high hat. She briefly dated one young man, a dentist, until he took her swimming uh, one day. In his bathing suit, he was covered in red hair. She thought he looked like an emaciated orangutan. She was repulsed but she did let him take her to the theater to watch Ethel Barrymore perform on stage during a run of Captain Jinx of the Horse Marines. Ethel wore gowns from Lucille, the exclusive boutique label featuring designer Lady Duff Gordon. It was the first time Elda had ever seen high fashion outside of the Sunday supplements, which was the best day of the week for her because she soaked in all the glamour and gossip in its pages. While Elda watched Ethel Barrymore, she was convinced that she should be an actress. She wanted the freedom it would bring for her to leave her life of drudgery in Altoona behind. Elda believed that she could develop her acting skills by collecting the accounts from neighbors. By instinct, she responded to the task as though each door represented a scene already in progress on the stage. First, she turned on the tears when she knocked on the doors. When the adults ignored her or tried to shut the door in her face, Elda launched into a tirade of fury and threats. Whatever made people respond, she gave them. It was like an improvisational school for her. In the end, the debts were repaid. At 14 years old, Elda was the most ferocious bill collector Altoona had ever seen. 
Part of the reason that she succeeded as the family's bill collector was because she believed it was right down to her bones, something that sustained Hedda Hopper in the many battles she waged in the press decades later. She wasn't only driven by what she believed in. She recalled that she felt justified by dipping her hand into the till in the butcher shop. She didn't think it was right that she should work all those hours for free, just as she refused the miserly price her grandfather had put on her labor when he had presented her with one silver dollar. One year, Elda spent five dollars of her own money on an Easter bonnet and wore it to church. It was bright green, made of straw, and was trimmed with red velvet geraniums. She was the center of attention. The congregation of rubberneckers turned to get a good look at her. Elda noted that if a hat could get her this much attention, she would never go bareheaded again. Perhaps through her success at closing accounts, which kept the family solvent, when Mr. Furry returned from his adventure with empty pockets, Elda took the opportunity to ask permission to attend a conservatory in Pittsburgh. In time, she had saved $250, which was enough to carry her from Altoona to Pittsburgh. She enrolled in the Carter Conservatory of Music, where she became friends with the daughter there, Hattie Carter. Hattie once invited her to run away to New York City. On the stage, she went by the name Elda Curry. Screenwriter Charles Brackett later said that Elda had the nicest legs on the New York stage. In her memoir, she recalled when she joined um, her friend there, uh, Hattie, in New York City. She said, the first time I appeared in costume in front of a stage manager, he gave me a look and then said out of the corner of his mouth to another man, I'd like to own that for a night. Elda turned and thanked the man. Her friend Hattie walked up to him and smacked him across the face. Hattie gave her an important lesson. Forget the word thank you and start learning how to say no loud and clear. Elda claimed to be a teenager when she married DeWolf Hopper, a stage actor who was older than her father. She was really 22 years old. DeWolf Hopper must have seemed like an odd choice for the great first love of her life. First, he was four years older than her father. He had four ex-wives, three of whom received alimony. As a young man, DeWolf had suffered typhoid fever, and as a result, he had no hair on his body, nothing, anywhere. He was bald. He had no eyebrows or eyelashes. He was as smooth as a mole. He was exceedingly tall. Reports vary that he was between six foot three and six foot seven. DeWolf Hopper also had a habit of doubling or tripling recommended doses of medicines. He was deathly afraid of losing his voice, his golden instrument, which he relied upon while he acted on the stage. One of his biggest or most famous pieces was obsessively reciting Casey at the Bat in social gatherings. A doctor had prescribed a silver nitrate solution diluted to 10% with water. DeWolf Hopper thought better of it and raised the solution to 50% in water. The silver nitrate was loaded with mercury, which turned Hopper's skin blue. He was a tall, blue, bald giant. As he aged, the blue turned to a pewter gray. 
but the fifth Mrs. Hopper was long gone by then. DeWolf won little Elda because she was actively disinterested in any man when she joined his show, The Pied Piper. Jack Barrymore once quipped at the time that if he and DeWolf looked at the same girl in that same way, he should just walk away. It would be no contest. DeWolf would win her. He was the bigger wolf. Jack also added that his father learned the same lesson. Looking back, Elda said he won her with his voice. DeWolf Hopper had a voice like a church organ, she noted, and she would not be the first young woman to be swept away by a smooth talker. Hopper nagged Elda about her Pennsylvania accent until she replaced it with an over-the-top stage English accent. She noted, I clipped my letter so short that I sounded like an inbred British dowager mated to a Boston bull terrier. She married DeWolf Hopper, whom she called Wolfie, in May 1913, after she had finished a run as the second lead in The Quaker Girl, which starred Ina Clare. Later, in an interview, their son Bill noted that before his own marriage... Many years later, Hedda told him, for God's sake, don't take your wife by force like your father did. Hedda felt that her marriage should have felt like a triumph, especially in the face of her old neighbors in Altoona. She had wanted to rub their faces in the idea of a small town girl married to a Broadway star. But her father stole her thunder. David Furry, the butcher, had a statement printed in the Altoona Gazette that he felt the union was out of character for the family. He wrote, the marriage pains me greatly, and added of his new son-in-law, if he married her like he took up with the other four wives, as he would a plaything, it would be an outrage her old dad will not stand for. Hedda tried her best to forget about what her family thought and applied herself to try and please her middle-aged husband. Years later, in her memoir, she argued that women should work to support themselves. She believed that even the toughest job was easier than pleasing a man. Hedda would be in the minority of women in Hollywood who learned their lesson after a bad marriage and kept her freedom. She never married again. At first, Wolfie had promised a European honeymoon, and they had planned to sail with friends. Elda was excited beyond measure. They never reached beyond the harbor, though, with the friends who um, invited them for a Bon Voyage toast. Wolfie had several weeks left on a stage production and couldn't take the time off. He could scarcely afford it, even at his whopping salary of $1,000 a week, since he owed three women alimony. After his play closed, they spent time visiting friends in a small town in upstate New York. Wolfie imbibed and ate too much, which made his gout flare up. He insisted that they spend the remainder of their honeymoon in French Lick Springs, Indiana, so he could take the cure. Wolfie was evangelical about the spring's curative powers and badgered his new bride to join him. The mud baths were one thing, but Elda gagged at the ten glasses of Pluto water that were prescribed each day. The water smelled of rotten eggs. 
had a tour the country with Wolfie's theater troupe. When in New York, they lived in the Algonquin Hotel, which put Hedda in the middle of the smart set among writers such as Alexander Walcott, Dorothy Parker, Robert Benchley, and actors such as Barrymore and Tallulah Bankhead. Wolfie loved nothing more than commanding attention and telling stories. At times, he was less than gallant when he shared intimate details about his ex-wives and what they liked and didn't like. But Elda gave him as good as he gave her in return with her sass mouth. She would say, well, no one can say that I married you for your money, Wolfie, because you haven't any. She made bald jokes, too. Although her husband declared that he didn't want his wife to work, there was only a brief time in their marriage when Hedda didn't work, most of which was um, coincided with the birth of their son, Bill. As she followed Wolfie on the stage tour, she decided to conceal her pregnancy with clever wardrobe camouflage. By the time she was well advanced, Beth Fairbanks one day sent over a parcel of baby clothes. When Elda asked how the first wife of Doug knew, Beth replied that Elda waddled, as all pregnant ladies do after a while. The cat was out of the bag, so Hedda decided to make it public and host a luncheon for 12 ladies. At the end of 1914, nearly two months before the predicted due date, as she prepared for the luncheon, her water broke. Instructed by her doctor to check into the local hospital, Elda objected. She simply couldn't. She had 12 ladies coming to lunch, and she had ordered orchids. DeWolf was lured out to Hollywood on a contract with Triangle Pictures at $1,500 a week. Many actors from New York made the sojourn to Hollywood, such as Marie Dressler, Billy Burke, Laura Hope Cruz, Douglas Fairbanks, and Lionel Barrymore. Mrs. Beth Fairbanks found a house and a husband and wife to run the place for the Hoppers by the time they arrived. Wolfie's film debut was in Don Quixote in 1915. He was pushing 60 when he made his film debut. Keep in mind that he was a big blue ball giant who traded on his melodious voice, which really wasn't of any use in silent pictures. Wolfie retained his stage acting technique, which was too broad for the camera. And he must have been self-conscious about the camera because he persistently missed his marks and walked outside the camera's range. He complained that he disliked making pictures because he never received any applause, no matter how good he was, and he had to get up too early in the morning. Rather than hang around her husband's film sets, Hedda had her sights higher. She was dazzled by watching 30 angels held aloft and then become airsick during the crucifixion scene in W.D. Griffith's Intolerance. And she watched a torch put to Geraldine Farrar's pile as Joan of Arc and Cecil B. DeMille's Joan the Woman. After a year, his contract option wasn't picked up. Wolfie floated an idea to Elda about them pairing up for an act for the Orpheum Keith vaudeville circuit, but Elda rejected it. It was too risky. He had the car packed in a hurry, leaving his wife and son behind in Hollywood to follow to New York later by train. Wolfie wasted no time giving out about how vapid films were in interviews with the press. In 1916, Elda made her screen debut in The Battle of Hearts, 
based on a story about a woman who was a sea captain, written by Frances Marion. Frances Marion sold the story for $5,000. That was a lot of money. But William Farnham, the star of the picture, made $6,000 a week. Frances was dismayed when the studio revised the scenario to switch the genders to focus on a male hero that Farnham played. Marie Dressler told her friend to shut up and take the money. Marion's story called for a tall, imposing lady captain. Farnham was friends with the couple, the Hoppers, and suggested Elda to play the leading lady. Frances Marion felt Elda fit the bill because she looked tall on screen with her posture and bearing. Even though Elda wore fisherman's gear, she looked regal and glamorous. She was signed at $100 a week. The production was riddled with accidents and jarring moments. Two crew members died when a boat capsized for an island location shoot. Another boat capsized and by miracle no one drowned, even though the men wore heavy boots and clothing. They lost a lot of equipment and camping gear, so Elda doubled up with the director's wife. They shared flea-infested blankets. During one night, field mice ran all over them to get at the soap that was scented that, that had stashed above their heads. Elda was scheduled for a scene where she fell off the boat. She was terrified of the sea, she didn't know how to swim, and at one point, the director, Oscar Apfel, fell over the side by accident. When he emerged from the sea, Apfel had a baby octopus clinging to his arm. She took one look at that and lost her composure in a fit of hysterics. In a memoir Frances published in 1972, she said that Hedda had a great capacity for love and friendship. They became friends for life. Since Hopper's ex-wives bore names similar to Elda, they were Ida, Ella, Edna, and Nella, he would consistently call his young bride the wrong name. In 1918, she had enough. Elda paid a numerologist $10 to decide on a new name for her. And the numerologist came up with Hedda Hopper. Hedda never looked back. And Wolfie, as she called him, never used the wrong name again. As a husband, Wolf Hopper had a lot of baggage, and it wasn't his four ex-wives. It was his belief that his life should carry on as it always had, and Hedda should just adjust. He adhered to a regular schedule, which meant he stayed at his club in New York until dawn, carousing with so-called important men. Then he'd make his way home, he'd wake Hedda, tell her what a great time he had with the boys, and then he'd go to bed. He would demand that little Bill be kept quiet until he woke at 1 p.m. When he was in a stage production, his hours were pretty much the same. Hedda once asked why she couldn't meet some of his friends one night, to which Wolfie responded, but they wouldn't be interested meeting you. Hedda and Bill were held hostage to Wolfie's whims. By 1918, she had seven pictures under her belt when Hedda recalled that she had one of her brain waves about a popular novel called Virtuous Wives. Asking around, she learned that a man she knew socially, director George Lone Tucker, 
was about to put the novel into production. She had met Tucker when she visited Mabel Normand while she filmed on set in the Fort Lee studio. Hedda felt this could be a breakthrough for her career, Virtuous Wives. She desperately wanted the part, and she put on a charm offensive for the director. She called into his office dressed to the teeth. She wore a gray chiffon frock, a gray hat with ostrich feathers, and even a gray chiffon umbrella. Hedda wondered how he didn't laugh in her face. She was so frilly and feminine. She was as chic as the character she wanted to play in the script. Hedda felt that the role she could do big things for her, and she wasn't taking any chances. Tucker was bowled over. He thought she would be great as a, as a society dame. The problem was, he told her, that the star, Anita Stewart, had cast approval, so Hedda would need to win her over. Tucker promised to send his manager to take Hedda over to the Vitagraph studio in Brooklyn, where Anita was working. The next morning, Hedda waited for the manager at Penn Station. He hesitated when he approached, asking, You're not the woman I met yesterday, or are you? Hedda explained, Yesterday, I was dressed for the director. Today, I'm dressed for Miss Stewart. The manager replied, Oh, I get it, and laughed appreciatively. Hedda wore a dress that was 10 years old, worn shoes, and a shabby hat that had seen better days. Anita smiled when she met Hedda and agreed to have her join the cast. Anita apologized for making Hedda drive all the way out to Brooklyn. As the star, Anita made $3,500 a week. Hedda signed for a 10-week contract at $500 a week. Once she signed, Hedda ran to Lucille Incorporated, the exclusive boutique owned by Lady Duff Gordon, who was Eleanor Glynn's sister and one of the most famous designers of the day. Irene Castle was one of her best customers, and remember, Hedda recalled seeing her first Lucille gown on Ethel Barrymore on the stage. Hedda had been to fashion shows in Lucille, but never had the money to order the expensive designs. Lady Duff Gordon had once said, knowing that Hedda was an actress, when you get a dressy picture, come to me. For many productions of the era, cast members provided their own wardrobe. There was no costume department. So when Hedda showed up in a frock that was 10 years old, Anita Stewart thought she was given a preview of a dowdy woman who wouldn't outshine her. Instead of turning up in rags, Hedda invested $5,000, her entire salary, for the picture on a wardrobe. That's the equivalent of $86,000 today. Every stitch she wore was couture. Hedda wore the best fabric and design fit exactly to her shape. She wore the best on her back that money could buy. Anita never saw the clothes until the first day, which was a location shoot on Long Island. Hedda wore a vision in lilac and mauve chiffon. Hedda floated like a summer blossom in the breeze. The star naturally balked. She turned to stone. Anita asked the crew, what was she wearing? The crew drew a blank and played dumb. Who, they asked. Anita may have hissed, her, that hopper woman. Hedda was sweetness and light. 
She became overly polite and helpful, the way you do to appear faultless when you know you've pulled a doozy. The star insisted that she, she wasn't dressed properly. Hedda explained that Lady Duff Gordon made the clothes and that anyone else could try to do better. Hedda explained some more that she was wearing a tea gown to be worn for tea, cocktails, or informal dinners. She just so happens to wear gowns like this in her own home, and in the scene they were shooting, Hedda was supposed to be in her home. Anita kept saying she didn't like it. Innocently, Hedda replied that she was wearing her own clothes. If Anita wanted her to have something new made, it would take weeks and delay the production. You see, she told Anita, I never wear anything ready-made. Anita Stewart refused to do the scene that day and walked off the set. For three days, she stayed at home in a protest. On the fourth day, she gave up and went to work. The star realized that she cost the studio money and she kept the cast and crew from working. But she didn't know that the lilac mauve tea dress was just the tip of a fashion iceberg headed straight for her. One day, Hedda showed up for a scene wearing a $450 evening gown in red satin, poofed in the back with tulle and paradise feathers. Hedda noted they nearly needed to call for the riot squad when she showed up in that one. Plus, Hedda paid a hairdresser to follow her on set, keeping her hair as smart as her frocks. Anita threw tantrums, refused to work, so Tucker, the director, would lob extra scenes to Hedda. By the end, Hedda racked up four times the amount she spent in front of the camera than was originally in the script. Their relationship between Anita and Hedda was as frosty as a skating pond during January in Altoona. They didn't speak for decades after the picture wrapped. There was little the star could do. She gritted her teeth and went on with a shoot. One day on set, Hedda had to keep yelling at a little man whose big round head kept creeping into the scene. Later, she found out it was the film's producer. It was his first picture and he apologized. His name was Louis B. Mayer. Hedda had been right about her instincts for the picture. She took all the notices. After the picture's release, producers and moguls, even if they didn't remember her name, they would ask for that stylish society dame from Virtuous Wives. Get her, she'll dress this picture. Virtuous Wives raised Hedda's asking price for pictures. She found plenty of work in New York and New Jersey studios. Her career was really taking off. Wolfie had always refused to buy a house and preferred to live in the Algonquin, maintaining his bachelor habits. Tired of waiting, Hedda wanted a house for little Bill. She took the money she made and saved from pictures, $10,000, and put down a deposit on a house in Long Island. She put the house solely in her name. Wolfie was the softest touch on Broadway. Any actor with a hard luck tale could be sure of a handout. Ty Power Sr. once tapped Wolfie for $500 on one day, which happened to be Hedda's birthday. 
I should note that his son, Ty Power Jr., repaid the debt to Hedda years later when he found out with interest. Wolfie never bought her gifts. Just once did she manage to wheedle a string of pearls from him, the sole gift he bought her during their long marriage. Not only was he an idiot with money, his snobbery about his theater credentials grew tedious. His friends were just as bad. Even her agent treated Hedda as though she were a no-talent showgirl who should be grateful for the crumbs that fell her way. In 1920, she was tired of shabby treatment from men. Hedda went after two things that would show them up, better roles and more money. Bold as brass, when Hedda was up for a role in the picture of the New York Idea, she told the producer and director that she would be delighted to take the part for $1,000 a week. They didn't quibble about her price and drew up a contract. Hedda was elated and made a beeline for home so she could tell Wolfie. Hedda's son Bill said he will never forget what happened when she walked in the door with news that she was making the same amount as her much older, more experienced husband. When the blue hairless giant found out that his wife, the showgirl, made the same pay for acting in front of a camera while he had decades of stage training, he was furious. Wolfie told her, that's outrageous. You're not worth it. You're no actress. Hedda replied, who's the judge, you or the producers who sign my paycheck? Hedda wrote that she began to fall out of love with Wolfie at that moment. In her memoir, she noted that she witnessed the same scene of marital discord play out over and over again in Hollywood. Bill remembered the day when his mother came home with the news and his father went ballistic. Somehow, the news rattled the actor to his core and shook his masculine pride. It wasn't long before Wolfie began spending more and more time away from home. Hedda found hairpins in the car and lipstick stains on his clothing. One weekend, he told her he was going to be joining a yacht party where wives were not welcome. Hedda put her acting talent to good use and played detective, following Wolfie to a secluded cabin in the woods somewhere in New Jersey. He wasn't alone. On stakeout, she waited for her husband to emerge. Then she heard a woman singing. DeWolf exited the cabin with a young woman on his arm. The canary, Hedda realized, was cast in his latest production. Following quietly quietly behind the lovers, Hedda called out, Sailing on pretty calm water tonight, aren't you, Wolfie? Caught and feeling remorseful, Wolfie begged forgiveness and swore he would become a better husband. Hedda gave in, but their reconciliation was short-lived. Hedda wanted a New York divorce. The only admissible grounds in the state was adultery. When Wolfie left on tour with the Little Canary, she thought she would have it. Hedda hired private detectives to collect evidence for her suit. But Wolfie figured it out, took the detectives aside, and paid them more to leave him alone. Hedda contacted another detective agency. The same thing happened. The detectives wound up commiserating with her estranged husband. Wolfie's only concern was that a fifth divorce would harm his stage career. 
perhaps in an effort to shift focus from her unhappy marriage, Hedda dove headlong into her, her acting career. She maintained a schedule during 1921 that would have hospitalized many other women. During the day, from 9 a.m., she was on the soundstage filming Sherlock Holmes, which starred John Barrymore. At night, she appeared on a stage on Broadway in the play Six Cylinder Love, a drama about a marriage on the rocks. Hedda also squeezed in a feud during her double shift. She went to her favorite milliner and asked for something to spice up a chartreuse gown she wore in one act. The milliner designed a, designed a big, bold hat, blood red, trimmed with camellias. Backstage one day, she asked the play stars, June Walker, what she thought of the hat. June looked at it and gave her consent. Sure, it was grand. Go ahead, wear it. After the third time had a ward on stage in Six Cylinder Love, June had changed her mind. A friend in the audience had told June that during the scene, no one saw anything but Hedda's hat. June complained to Hedda and to the producer. The producer said, sorry, you gave permission. That's too bad. The hat stays. And it did. Hedda began one of her most significant relationships in 1921, one that endured for the rest of her life. Hedda had drawn favorable notices from her early career from Luella Parsons, but in 1921, they became friends. Hedda had taken to sending juicy tidbits of backstage news to Luella in New York when she had first ventured to Hollywood in 1915. Luella had responded in kind with a well-placed word or two about Hedda's career or her fashion choices. In November 1921, Luella published a lengthy interview with Hedda, asking about the 19 films and two plays that she had done in four years. With the candor that was to become her trademark in the press by the end of the next decade, Hedda told Luella, if anyone thinks 19 pictures in four years is a slight achievement, let them try it. I get so furious when people say to me, oh, you just do pictures for the fun of it, don't you? Fun? I've done some pictures I've loved and some pictures I've been ashamed to tell people I've been in, but I never did one that wasn't hard work. 19 pictures in four years. Is it any wonder I'm haggard and cross and old before my time? In February of 1922, Hedda had had enough of Wolfie's philandering and his inability to hold on to a dollar, plus his need to build his ego by belittling her talent and profession. By a turn of good luck, one of Wolfie's friends gave Hedda the evidence that she needed in court. I must admit to being surprised by how good a writer Hedda is, especially in the profile she wrote of her friends, such as Frances Marion, Marie Dressler, and Mabel Normand. Of Mabel, she calls her more sinned against than sinning, a woman who tried to cope with sadness by turning to sleeping pills and then narcotics. Had her rights of a scene when she called on Mabel in a New York City hotel. Mabel was surrounded by boxes of flowers that were all dead and rotting and stunk to high heaven. Mabel was in a state. Hedda and a friend found the white powder, flushed it, and installed a nurse to look after her. 
of Marie Dressler. Hedda presents an incurable romantic who is hornswoggled into marriage during a trip to London when she toured with a show and fell for the producer. After the show was over and their money ran out, Marie and her new husband sailed for home. When they docked, he told her he was already married, so their nuptials were invalid. Hedda has another great story about Marie Dressler. When she decided she wanted to throw a rustic dinner party for guests, knowing especially that Hearst loved home cooking, Marie invited Marion Davies, Frances Marion, Hearst, Hedda, and Lowell Sherman. The hostess served a lethal cocktail made of vanilla ice cream and bathtub gin, followed by a platter of corned beef and cabbage that turned everyone as green as the lawns and San Simeon. Hedda recalled that the dinner was of a piece with Marie's pension and film for tragic comedy. Marie Dressler nearly gave up acting until a friend convinced her that her day would come. It was written in the stars. Of all the great scene stealers she knew in Hollywood, none surpassed Dressler, Hedda argued. She decided she was better off as the fifth ex-Mrs. DeWolf Hopper. Looking back on her marriage, Hedda recalled, I didn't really have a husband. I had legal permission to live with a star. The court awarded Hedda $500 a week, which combined child support and alimony. It also stipulated that DeWolf Hopper pay $5,000 in court fees. As it turned out, he never paid a dime. The first time that their son Bill received any money from his father, he was in long pants in school, and even then it was only a $20 gold piece. The actor had too many bills and not enough sense with money. Hedda had little recourse but to economize and work as much as she could. She did take out life insurance on DeWolf and herself, so at least Bill would have something if the worst happened to his parents. After Six-Cylinder Love ran for 10 months and Hedda had her divorce, she decided to accompany her friend Zabel Hitchcock on a trip to Paris. Her friend was there for work as a fashion buyer. Hedda wanted to see the sights. She took a side trip to London alone, but found that people she knew were out of town. Mindful of the expense, she switched her $20 a day room to something more economical. No doubt she wanted to put distance between Wolfie and his entourage when she decided to make a permanent move to Hollywood in 1923. As shrewd as she was with negotiating salary with producers, producers in New York, she made a major blunder during talks with Louis B. Mayer. During one of his visits to the city, Hedda made an appointment. Unaware of his tactics for lowballing figures and crocodile tears, and any means of manipulation during contract talks, Mayer asked Hedda for the lowest figure she would accept to sign with the studio. What was her bottom line? She did the sums quickly in her head and answered $250 a week. Not only did he lowball her salary, but he pulled the old desk-chasing routine once she was under contract. $250 a week was peanuts compared to her New York salary. Mayer signed her immediately to a seven-year contract. 
She excelled at playing bitchy society dames who wore great clothes. And in my book, that's a worthy epitaph. So I don't dismiss Hedda's talent. She's a standout in every one of her pictures that I've seen. One critic with a Toledo newspaper gave this review. Hedda Hopper can say more with her eyebrows than any woman alive. When she first arrived on her own in Hollywood, a divorcee, Hedda resided in a hotel and hired a chauffeur whose job it was to teach her how to drive. Hedda was terrified behind the wheel. Wolfie had been auto-obsessed and considered them delicate machines not fit for women to drive. After her first lessons, Hedda shook for hours. Soon enough, though, she was running up telephone poles and careening around at top speed. Friends called her Hell on Wheels Hopper for years. In time, she took Bill out of his East Coast boarding school and rolled him in a good school on the coast where he'd make contacts and sold the house in Long Island. Bill couldn't stay with her because of her early and very long hours in the studio. In an effort to save money, Hedda moved into a three-room basement flat. She figured she was only there enough, long enough to sleep, change clothes, and have breakfast, and the rest of the time she was in a studio, so it didn't matter. One day, an Iceman came with a delivery. He looked around at the tiny, dank flat and said, "'You're in pictures, ain't you?' Hedda replied she was." With pity on his face, he said, Haven't you got any man to take care of you? This must have been a real shock to Hedda. Keep in mind that when she was married to Wolfie and he was on tour, he traveled in a private train car, something he could hardly even afford with a wife, child, and four ex-wives. Hedda wasn't the only woman who experienced a dramatic loss of class position after a divorce. Hedda's contract with Metro got off to a bad start. She was assigned to her first picture, scheduled to play the leading lady. When she arrived early on set, the director, Reginald Barker, shouted for everyone to hear, I can't photograph this woman. Barker refused to have her in his picture. Mayer replaced Hedda with Winifred Winifred Bryson to play next to Warner Baxter. The two wound up getting married. Hedda left the set, humiliated. Word spread like wildfire around the studio. She was the new person on the lot with a blot on her chances. Never mind that for 10 years, Hedda played the New York stage and films in Hollywood and New York and had photographed just fine. Hedda's name was Mud until director John Stahl came along and cried nonsense and cast Hedda in his picture. Although she had a rocky start, Hedda kept working in MGM. One day, she noticed Reginald Barker had requested her for one of his films on the production schedule. Hedda refused. Irving Thalberg called her into his office. She explained why she wasn't going to work for Barker. Thalberg said he understood, but that it would harm her chances in the studio. In 1925, Hedda was cast in Xander the Great, a Marion Davies picture, written by Hedda's friend Francis Marion. After they had filmed for a week or so, Hedda drew her first of many invitations out to San Simeon. Cast members that Marion worked with often received an invitation at one time or another, but Hedda got along famously with Marion and with Hearst. No doubt they bonded as actresses in a company town. 
Hedda was so often a guest at San San Simeon that after a while, Hearst told new guests to ask Hedda to give them the grand tour, since she seemed to know as much about the place as he and Marion did. In 1926, Hedda Hopper continued playing royalty or society dames in MGM or loan out to other studios. During production of Don Juan, she was cast in a supporting role and she watched every scene Jack Barrymore filmed, explaining that someone with theater in his blood, like Jack, would appreciate an audience. She had a starring role in a short called Mona Lisa that was done in color, part of a series devoted to the story of great works of art. To meet expenses, Hedda also dabbled in real estate. She was on the cusp of 40 in an industry that wanted flaming youth. In the silence, Hedda played with Barrymore, Marion Davies, Norma Talmadge, Adolph Manjou, Eleanor Boardman, John Gilbert, Colleen Moore, Alice Brady, Conrad Nagel, Lois Wilson, Clive Brook, Norma Shearer, Laura LaPlante, Constance Bennett, Billy Burke, Mae Marsh, George M. Cohan, Rod LaRocque, and many others. Hedda Hopper still has a long decade ahead of her before her fortunes really change. As a bit of a preview, it's important to note that her early experiences with men shaped the way she worked as a Hollywood columnist. Hedda's father, grandfather, husband, directors, and moguls treated women as though they were dim-witted servants or disposable sex toys. Is it any wonder she used her power against men like Chaplin, Mayer, and a shower of playboys? Join me next time for episode 79 when I talk about Luella and Hedda. I'll pick up with the ladies at the end of the Roaring Twenties when the talkies disappear, or, or sorry, when the talkies enter the picture and the stock market crash made fortunes disappear overnight. Thanks very much for listening.